is Baseball Tonight, the podcast. This is the Baseball Tonight podcast for Wednesday, March 22nd, 2023. And today will be better than yesterday. Working from Bristol, Taylor, Sarah, Bruce, I'm Buster Only. I'm working from my home in Montana. And uh, morning, guys. Uh, I-, I feel like after we saw the final of the WBC last night, the operative word is dream. Okay, because we all talked about uh, the dream matchup, and it feels like that it was a dream come true for Major League Baseball, for the Player Association who co on this event. And I was thinking about, and, and look, tell me if you agree with me on this. You know, we talk about the NBA and its development and its marketing. Uh, the dream team in 1992 was so big because, you know, for ba- uh, basketball fans who uh, had their imagination spurred with the question of, what will it look like having Magic Johnson play alongside Larry Bird, play alongside, uh, uh, you know, Michael Jordan, uh, you know, Charles Barkley, et cetera. And that event really spurred baseball going forward and going into the WBC, the dream matchup, what everyone was thinking about was how cool would it be if we got to see Shohei Otani pitching to Mike Trout, his teammate, you know, his good friend, in a big moment and man we got that last night it was awesome i i could i couldn't believe it i mean throughout the day there was the talk of like oh shohei otani is going to come out of the bullpen um and then you know things things really start getting getting tight there at the end and it, it just the stars align man i don't know how the universe decided that was what was going to happen but but we got it it was awesome and i'm not even that mad that team usa lost it was so cool to just to take in Oh, I'm mad Team USA lost red, white, and blue all day, but it was so much fun to watch, and the energy was amazing. It was just so cool to see. Yeah, and I was fascinated by how Otani pitched to Trout, and I'll be talking with Paul and Bikitis about that. Uh, I I was surprised at the ending uh, of what happened. All right, now before the game, Shohei Otani gave a speech to his teammates, and his message was, Stop admiring the players on the U.S. team. He might as well have been talking about Mike Trout. Give a listen to that. Top of the second inning. USA batting Trey Turner, who's been so unbelievable during the WBC, that grand slam against Venezuela, which really saved the U.S. team uh, earlier in the tournament. Came to the plate in the top of the second inning. Turner with four home runs to lead Team USA in the tournament. The pitch. He swings and crushes one to left. Way back. Trey Turner's unconscious. A solo home run in the second to give USA the lead. That call from Major League Baseball Network. The team from Japan tied the score in the bottom of the second. First pitch is clubbed to right. And Murakami, who walked off yesterday, has tied the game with an upper deck home run. It's one to one. Japan was ahead two to one in the top of the fourth inning when this happened. The Rockies lefty delivers, and that one is crushed to deep left center field. Mullins on the run to the fence. He's run out of room. Okamoto with a home run to left center field, and Japan leads three to one. That call from MLB Network Radio. So it all came down after the U.S. team cut the lead to three to two. Uh, Kyle Schwarber hit a home run. The U.S. team had initially had a leadoff runner, uh, Jeff McNeil, getting on base. They pinch run for him, but then Mookie Betts hits into a double play. Mike Trout 
batting against Shohei Otani. The dream matchup happens. Here's how it ended. Otani set. Trout ready. The 3-2 pitch. Trout swings and misses. And Japan wins the 2023 WBC. Otani fires his helmet towards the dugout. He's mobbed on the mound by his teammates. And Japan goes undefeated in winning the championship tonight. 3-2. Here's what it sounded like on TV in the Japanese broadcast. What joy. You just love the joy. Mike Trout talked about that final at-bat against Otani. So, Mike, take us through the at-bat, what it was like. Yeah, no, it was obviously, um, you know, fun, fun, fun. Obviously, it didn't come out the way I wanted to. Um, you know, I think uh, as a baseball fan, I think that's, you know, everybody wanted to see it. Um, you know, he, he, he won round one. Uh, <laughs> no, it's, you can't take it any away from it. Just to be able to come out of the bullpen, um, you know, as a starter and, um, you know, it's showtime. So it's, uh, you know, hats off to them guys over there. It was a tough, tough night for us, but uh, we'll be back. I love the fact that Trout sounded so bummed. Like this yeah. was probably like 15 minutes after the game, and he really sounded bummed. Mark DeRosa, manager of Team USA, talked about the game coming down to Trout versus Otani. I was just thinking about all the people around the world watching the game. Like this is, it, it never usually co- plays out like that. And I was just saying, I just wanted the leadoff hitter on. Jeff got, I mean, we couldn't ask. Jeff gets that, works that nasty walk, and then we have. Two of the best players in the game back-to-back going against Otani with Goldie behind him. I, I, I felt confident. I really did. So, But I was well aware. I was like, wow, the baseball world's going to win tonight regardless. Yeah, we'll get the numbers later today, but I fully expect this will be the most-watched game. It made the most-watched moment uh, in the history of baseball. Um, DeRosa talked about Otani being a unicorn. You know what blows me away on the stage, Tyler, is the fact that he seems to like no moments too big for him. I mean, he did not seem like rattled by walking Jeff McNeil on a close pitch down. Not rattled that, like you said, three MVPs were coming coming up to bat. Um, like you said, I've, anal- I've analyzed him for, for years since he's come over here. What he's doing in the game is what probably 90% of the guys in that clubhouse did in Little League or in youth tournaments, and he's able to pull it off <laughs> on the biggest stages. He is a, uh, he's a unicorn to the sport. I, don't, you know, I think other guys will try it, but I don't think they're going to do it to his level. I completely agree with what DeRosa said. We've been talking about it on the podcast. You know, there might be a generation of players who try to do what Otani's doing as a two-way player, but... I, I have my doubts as to whether or not anybody could pull it off ever. Uh, and that's how unbelievable Otani has been. You know, being that dominant of a pitcher, he threw the fastest pitch 
uh, in this tournament, 102 miles per hour last night. The fastest pitch, by the way, he's ever thrown since he came to the United States. And he also had the hardest hit ball, 118 miles per hour plus. From the shift rule to bigger bases to the pitch clock, a new era in baseball has arrived. We're just eight days away from the start of opening day. And for ESPN, our first broadcast that we have coming up uh, from Houston, White Sox versus Astros, just a week from Thursday. Well, spring training around baseball continues. Matt Olson's having a great spring for the Braves. This is what he did on Tuesday. There's one one. Oh, this is it a mile high to deep right field. Manuel Margot to the wall, bombs away. Oh my goodness. That was higher than the lights to deep right field. And Matt Olson has gone deep for the sixth time this spring. And it's a four-three ball game. That from the Braves Radio Network. I've got a side bet with my son, who's a huge Braves fan. Uh, I told him I think Acuna is going to win the National League MVP. He's got Olsen winning the MVP, so we'll see how that goes. The Orioles face the Red Sox on Tuesday, and wow, the Orioles teed off against Chris Sale. Adley Rutschman first, then Ryan Mountcastle. Adley, he had a long home run in the game on Sunday against the Pirates, but Rutschman in the air, left field and deep. Allen going back, looking up, and Adley Rutschman has got a first-in home run. Coming from the right side of the plate, the Orioles jump on sale in the first inning. Speaking of what you can do at the plate, Ryan Mountcastle, great spring at 364. Mountcastle sprays it to deep center. Tapia on the warning track, looking up. It's another home run for Mountcastle. The Orioles getting homers from Rutschman and Mountcastle in this inning, and they've got a 2-0 lead. Carlos Correa is getting for his, uh, getting ready for his second season with the Twins, and he did this in the first inning. Wins above replacement over five. And 2-1 pitch, crushed to left field and deep. Back it goes, deep it goes, and way out of here, home run Correa. On to the berm in left field, so a Buxton double, followed by a Correa home run. Two batters in, 2 nothing Twins. So some other notes, Dodgers manager Dave Roberts hasn't announced his schedule starter for March 30th, the season over against Arizona, but it looks like Julio Arias is lined up to pitch that game, and not surprisingly, Clayton Kershaw is an excellent teammate, says that's all good with him. You know, Arias has been the most consistent pitcher for the Dodgers in recent seasons. Arizona Diamondbacks starting catcher Carson Kelly sustained a fractured forearm after getting hit by a pitch during an exhibition game Monday. We're still waiting to hear what the timeline is going to be for Carson Kelly's return. Since we taped on Monday, the Braves made a decision about their shortstop. They optioned Vaughn Grissom, who had been preparing to be the shortstop, to the minor leagues. That means that Orlando Arcia will have that job. We're going to be talking about that during the podcast today. And this is big news. Uh, Dave Dombrowski, who's head of baseball operations for the Phillies, told reporters on Tuesday that Bryce Harper will not be moved to the 60-day injured list to start the year. And what that means is the Phillies think there's a chance that Harper could be back in their lineup sometime by the end of May. Uh, because if they put him on the 60-day IL, which everybody expected as he comes back from Tommy John surgery on his throwing elbow, he would have been out until May 29th. And the Phillies are saying, hold on, we're not re quite ready to do that. So, Taylor, that's some hope. What else you got? 
Buster, I'm going to spend a moment uh, promoting Greeny on ESPN Radio, 10 a.m. Eastern to 12 p.m. Eastern, uh, Monday through Friday, also simulcast on ESPN+. Plus. We got this piece of audio from the show that I thought was relevant to our podcast, Buster. I want you to listen to this. By the way, I have a bone to pick. You know who I have it to pick with? Who's that? One Robert Stanberry Olney third. And why is that? We affectionately call him Buster. I'm going to do a green light here, and I'm, I'm going to lead my green light off with this. I'm ready to go right now. Green light, light with Greeny. Give me the green light. Bubba, did you hear the promotion that we just ran, a little promo that we ran as we were coming out of break? Buster talking about his podcast, the Baseball Tonight podcast, upon yep. which I was a guest about a week or so ago. And he talked about all the great guests they have, that they get baseball managers, they get baseball players, and then he ran through their regulars. Did you hear this? I did, yep. And he mentioned Carl Ravitch. Right. And he mentioned Sarah Langs. Yep. And he mentioned Tim Kirchin. Sure did. He may have mentioned Jeff Passan. Yep. Yeah, I think he covered everyone, I think. Do you know who has been on that show every week for six years? No. Hembo. Really? Hembo, you are a weekly contributor for six years. Why would you not? I need to ask Buster why you don't make the promo. I have no idea. Greeny, I have... have have Spoken more words on the Baseball Tonight podcast than any of the people that he mentioned. Probably by an order of magnitude. Once a week for six or seven years, there is a measure, a level of disrespect here for which I'm going to put on my Aaron Rodgers cape and go scorched earth. That's exactly right. No, you should go on a competing baseball podcast. You should demand that he trade you. Who else has a baseball podcast? John Boy talking baseball. That's the number one baseball podcast right now. So what you should do Mm. is you should go on that one and you should give all kinds of incredible stats and information. Not only that, you should go on there, give out free copies of our book. (laughs) (laughs) You should do all of this. That's what should happen. Buster, you can't do that. You can't disrespect our guys. At minimum, we need an explanation. Otherwise, I'm going to John Boy. Someone call Buster and find out what the heck he's doing over there. Dogs are an important part of our lives, and keeping them protected is a top priority, especially against nasty parasites. That's why you got to check out NextGuard Plus, a Foxaloner. Moxidectin, and pyrantal chewable tablets. NextGuard Plus Chews provide one-and-done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease, plus it treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef-flavored soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, ask about NextGuard Plus Chews. They're the one-and-done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Used with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting preventive. For the ones who get it done, Granger offers high-quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Jumping into the numbers. This is Hembo Knows on Baseball Tonight. Yeah, so Hembo, are you going to demand a trade now? Oh, no, I'm not going to demand a trade, but I feel like today is as good a time as any for me to you know use this platform just to run through some of the mentors that I've had in this industry whose opinions just carry so much weight in my life. Of course, 
obviously that would you know that's a tag that would belong to Jason Stark and Ken Rosenthal, Jeff Passan, obviously our colleague Sarah Langs. I mean, there are so many others. I don't want to name too many names, and there's definitely no one though that I'm definitely forgetting. So no trade is necessary. But this seemed like as good a time as any to mention those people as <laughs> those who have really propped up my baseball knowledge over the year. Yeah. So on the podcast, when we did that promo, uh, Taylor, did I mention you? Did I, Sarah, did I mention you? Because you know what? You're ubiquitous within the show, right? You're here all the time. Hembo's here all the time. I feel like you're, you're almost like part of the group that runs the podcast, right? Oh, so the truth of the matter, the truth of the matter is doing this with you once a week for as long as I've been doing it has been one of the great thrills of my career. And for as long as you will continue having me, I will feel that way. I just, when I heard the promo for the first time last week, I thought to myself, oh, well, that time must be coming to an end. <laughs> yeah, there's no way Greeny is starting that. I'm like, I'm hearing that going up. Hembo mentioned it to him. Hembo brought it up. Hembo brought him that material. And, uh, you know, that that's fully appropriate. So I apologize for that omission. But I truly do think of you as being like like part of the 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 creation the the formation of the show so oh, I apologize. There is no apology necessary. I will take it anyway. And you and I, you and I will hopefully continue talking about baseball until the end of time. Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, so uh, a couple. Let's talk. We obviously are going to talk about the WBC to start. You were the producer on uh, Get Up this morning when I was on there, and I talked about dream being the operative word. Uh, if you're Major League Baseball, you're the Player Association. This is a dream scenario. I thought of the dream team in 92, how that absolutely helped baseball or basketball launch in the international market. And I feel like that's what's going to happen here. What do you think? I totally agree with you. It's, it's moments like these, like that, that really drive the sport. I mean, this is, <laughs> this is a player in Shohei Otani who over the last two weeks had a 606 on base percentage in a term, tournament in which he also had a 186 ERA. <laughs> this is a player in Shohei Otani who had a 448-foot home run in the same tournament in which he threw a 102-mile-per-hour pitch. Well, so, you know, I fancy myself something of a baseball historian. And I think that the Babe Ruth-Shohei Otani comparisons now truly extend beyond the baseball field. It, it, it extends beyond his two-way prowess. Uh, Otani has cemented himself, and I think last night definitively, as the face of baseball and a global ambassador and as a beloved worldwide and that moment for me truly reinforces the enormous value of having your very best players in the postseason, which is something that we have been robbed of in the case of Shohei Otani. So as he creeps towards free agency, I'd have to imagine that that feeling that he had last night is going to play a big part in his decision, which we will talk about every day until the season ends. Did you see any of the clips of uh, Pedro Martinez speaking to Otani and thanking him? after the game last night for what he's doing for baseball and, 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 you know, for Otani, I mean, if, you know, if I say something like to, that to him or Tim Kirchin does, then you can kind of shrug it off. But when Pedro Martinez is thanking you for what you're doing for baseball, I think that's a full recognition of how different he is. I totally agree with what Mark DeRosa said after the game, you know, there might be other players who try to be a two-way player, but I, I, no one's going to do it like this. No one's going to be one of the, and I think right now we could say Otani is probably one of the 10 best hitters in baseball. And I think we can safely say he probably is one of the five to eight best pitchers in baseball. The idea that someone could replicate this, I just think there's no way. There's no way. He is a, a once in a million person, Buster. I played division two college baseball. 
and my coach at the Division II level at a podunk school in Ohio would not let people play two-way. Like, that's how rare it is at a level so many rungs beneath Major League Baseball. If he only pitched, he'd be the favorite to win the Cy Young every year. If he only DH'd, he'd be the best pitch, he'd be the best hitter or among the best hitters in baseball every year. It's not just that he does both. It's that he does both better than practically anyone else in the sport does either. It's completely unheard of. And the Babe Ruth comparison that I want to circle back to, Buster, doesn't just, it's not just this notion of, of, of someone being able to do both of these things so well. Like Babe Ruth popularized the sport in a way that had, nobody possibly could have before, and nobody really has since. In the case of Shohei Otani, what we learned over the last two weeks is that he is the face of a, the international pastime, as I'm calling it. Baseball has become the international pastime. And Shohei Otani is a like universally beloved figure who is at the epicenter of ex- extremely positive conversation, the kind of person now that you're going to see on national shows talked about amongst people that don't really care much for baseball, whose, whose conversations about baseball are always, well, how can we fix baseball? How can we better market Mike Trout? These problems have been solved. Baseball is going to enter the year of Otani now. Hopefully we get Shohei October at the end of it, but I'm not counting on it. Baseball is entering a season right now in which he is going to be at the forefront of all discussions that we're having. And there is not a better human that, that has walked the face of planet Earth since I have been alive to be at the center of that discussion. Yeah, no, and he's handling it great. Um, and I, I think he'll all year because he just plays with such confidence right now. And I said on the podcast last week, it feels like he's the 12 year old who hit puberty for the first time, you know, at the, at the, in the little league world series, he just seems so at ease, uh, total domination. I love the fact I mentioned before that Mike Trout, you could hear in his voice, he was still chapped like 15 minutes after it was over. He was still mad about being struck out. And I, and I, I would love to be a fly in the wall and Trout and Otani wouldn't let us behind to see this. But I'm sure at some point they'll talk about that plate appearance. I got to tell you, as I was watching it play out, where he just blows fastballs past Trout, 100, 101 miles per hour, and Trout swings and misses, but he was on the pitch. Like he was on the fastball. I'm thinking big brother, little brother, 3-2 count. Uh, you knew Otani didn't want to uh, walk Trout in that situation. I thought for sure he was going to challenge him with a fastball. And I think Mike Trout thought for sure he was going to try to dunk on him with a fastball, pure power. You played at a game a higher level than I did, and I'm curious to see if you felt the same way. And, you know, in the end, Otani, of course, winds up throwing this beautiful slider, which is perfectly placed. It's a little bit off the plate, looked like a strike. Then it became a ball. That's a great pitch. But I also, watching Trout, I thought he's thinking, man, really? You're not going to challenge me in that spot? Yeah, so Trout Trout had swung through two pitches already in the at bat, and the pitch, uh, and he had previously set up a, a sort of a middle middle fastball, which he swung through, and that's exactly the same plane for which Otani broke off that slider. Mike Trout took a, a fastball swing on just an absolutely nasty pitch, and to to have the audacity, to have the gumption in that moment to throw a frisbee slider up there to to Mike Trout, who had who had swung under two fastballs already, theoretically would not be something that you want to do. That's you, Buster. You watch Mike Trout, a thousand plate appearances, right? What you do yep. there is you climb, you climb the, the the ladder with a fastball, right? That's that's the book, and Mike Trout knows that. Mike Trout took that swing, and Sho- Shohei Otani, who I guess knows that book better than anybody else, threw the wrinkle up there. It was a sight to behold, and it was the most significant moment in the careers of both players. And I'm hoping that's not the case moving forward, but at least to date, I would have to say so. 
Yeah. Were you surprised? Just as a competitive person, did you think in that moment that Otani was going to say, I'm going to blow this past you, big brother? Yeah. Fastball at the letters. Fastball at the letters has been the book on Trout. Trout was behind the fastball. And it's after the second fastball that Trout swung through, he saw him do under the, like, sort of nod to himself to, to, to almost acknowledge, like, okay, he won't be able to do that again. I don't know if that was a tell. I don't know if Otani just didn't feel like, um, climbing the ladder once again or maybe he just had so much confidence in that slider but what a pitch it was like that was just the coolest that bat you could have ever imagined and when we're going to play over and over and over until the end of time yeah you're you're 100 right all right uh we're going to be talking with alden gonzalez more about the wbc coming up in a little bit uh when he joins us uh, but we're going to do a little uh preview superlatives from you before we start that uh, we heard the news yesterday. Very interesting. Dave Dombrowski, head of baseball ops of the Phillies, come out and says, you know what? We're not going to put Bryce Harper on the 60-day injured list. What'd you make of that? I was stunned. I-, I had no reason to believe that Bryce Harper had a chance to return before the end of May. Right, May 29th, I believe, is the cutoff for this. And that's a very surprising development for the Phillies and for Bryce Harper, who clearly is ahead on his rehab. But perhaps also the possibility of, again, which was an enormous deal last year, the National League moving to the DH, perhaps Bryce Harper can slide his way back into the lineup as he continues to rehab, and he might have to meet a, a different checkpoint to get back into the lineup than, of course, he would to be able to play full-fledged right field. So I'm, I'm very surprised by it, obviously very encouraged by his development, and I have to go back to the very beginning. I was dead wrong about this. I thought Bryce Harper should have gotten Tommy John surgery last, whatever it was, last June. When he, when he was hitting that hand with, in the hand with a Blake Snell pitch, right, and he went down, and we knew he'd be out for a while. Phillies fans thought to themselves at that time, let's get this over with, right? Let's just get it over with. As it turns out, his decision not to do that at the time put the Phillies in the World Series, and now it looks like he's way ahead of schedule. If, if Bryce Harper only winds up missing something like two months, the Phillies could be really live in a National League East race that I think right now is only a two-horse race between Atlanta and the Mets. But Bryce Harper, for you know, without just having uh, you know, some June on, say, if we wind up getting that, would be a huge lift to a lineup that looks stacked with Trey, uh, with Trey Turner at the very top of it. Yeah, I talked to Bryce on Sunday morning about how his rehab was going, and, and they just mentioned to him that, you know, so many players through the years I've seen try to push the rehab schedule, and, you know, and because I, I and, and in the end they wind up having setbacks. You remember that spring when Noah Syndergaard, his first BP session, was throwing like 100 miles an hour, <laughs> and it felt like he was going to break right away as he was coming back from surgery. Uh, and Bryce nodded. He said, you know what, I, I've done that myself. Like I pushed the rehab schedule and he said that he's following it at this time. So good news for them. All right. Give me what you think is the best lineup in baseball as we get ready for the start of the season. I think the answer to this question, Buster, is the Blue Jays. Toronto finished fourth in run scored last season. Look, the top third of it is we know it's sick. Springer, Bichette, and Vlad Jr. And they'll have a lot better balance, which I think is actually a significant improvement for them by adding Dalton Barsho, Brandon Belt, and Kevin Kiermeyer. Let's not forget either. They've moved in the fences at the Rogers Center. It was already a fairly hitter-friendly environment, but I think there's a real chance that these guys explode this year. Let's remember, Vlad Jr. was way better two years ago than he was last year. He's like Aaron Judge, carry your lineup kind of good if he's on. And if he's on for 162 games, he plays every day. Hopefully he's healthy right now after the spring training mishap that he had or the injury that he had. But I think a healthy Blue Jays lineup has the chance to be the very best in baseball and score something approaching 900 runs. That's how good they are. Boy, uh, and Bo Bichette would be a key guy in that. He's having a great spring, and that's great. And their balance in their lineup, which you and I have talked about for the last three years, 
would would uh, it would definitely be a big deal. And I am worried that Brandon Belt, Kevin Kiermeyer have these extensive injury histories. Uh, I probably would pick the Yankees, especially because I had a conversation with DJ LeMahieu. I've heard about him. He looks great. At the end of last season, they were really concerned about how he'd be physically, but they think he's in good shape. Tell me the best defense. I'm going to say the Dodgers. The Dodgers led the, the led all of baseball in defensive really? efficiency last season. I think they're going to do it again. Let me try and talk you into this. So, believe it or not, oh. like what the what the numbers say <laughs> is that Trey Turner to Miguel Rojas is a huge upgrade defensively. Turner's defensive metrics are not nearly what you think that they might be, given his speed and given his skill set. We know that every year, perennially, Will Smith and Mookie Betts provide enormous individual value at their position. And let's also not forget that. Without the shift and with everyone sort of, uh, you know, playing on an even field now, I trust the Dodgers front office analytics type as much as I do any people in the sport. They'll, they'll be among the first to kind of crack the code here without the shift. And so the combination of players that they have with the ingenuity of the front office, I think, makes the Dodgers the best run prevention team when the ball is hit in the whole sport. Guardians or Cubs for me? Like I, the, now they have Dansby Swanson, Nico Horner is going to go from being a really good shortstop to be an off the charts great at second base. Uh, I and I think you know in their outfield with Cody Bellinger in center field. I mentioned uh, I think it was um, you know in a call that I did yesterday that the Cubs are going to play a lot of four two three two three one games. Like their run prevention will be really good, and the Guardians last year demonstrated uh, you know how excellent they'll be. Who's got the best rotation? How is it not the Mets? I, I just kept coming back to the Mets Ooh. and saying. It's got to be. I, I just think it has to be because neither Verlander nor Scherzer have really dropped off at all. And look, Verlander is considerably more reliable, even at this stage in his career, than Jacob DeGrom was. I think Kodai Senga, almost everything I've read about him and seen this spring is very, very encouraging. So while they definitely don't have the deepest starting rotation, they're so loaded on the front end that especially in a playoff series, this to me is the best rotation in baseball. And the other factor I think that is worth considering is that without Edwin Diaz looming at the back end of the bullpen, I do wonder, especially with Verlander and Scherzer, if Buck Showalter is going to give those guys a little bit longer of a leash. And if there's any pitchers in baseball that are capable of taking that and running with it, it's those two. I I think the Mets have the best starting rotation in all of baseball. Well, and you know Max and and Verlander are going to know what's in the bullpen behind them. And Mm. they've also – they're close to the end of their respective careers in the beginning – They've both been paid huge dollars. They may feel that responsibility, but I'm not saying anything you don't already know. The big question is whether or not they can hold together, you know, hold up physically. Senga has a reputation among other teams, being a guy who has high injury risk. So we'll we'll uh, we'll see how that goes. Uh, and last one for you: Who's got the best bullpen? Houston. The the Astros have yes. the best bullpen in no baseball. Doubt. I mean, you you just asked that question to a Phillies fan who watched Houston utterly dominate the Phillies in the World Series last year across the entire postseason. That pen allowed five earned runs across 54 innings. And by the way, everyone is back. All yep. eight pitchers right now slotted in that bullpen returned from last season. Zero turnover. That is exceedingly rare in baseball today. So, I mean, Dusty Baker's familiarity with each of those guys goes a long way. Not only are they dominant, but like the formula that they have in place is already terrific. They have the best bullpen in baseball. And amongst these four things we just went through, that was the easiest answer I had to come by. I think I told you this story. There was uh, someone in the Phillies organization speaking with a peer in the Yankees organization after the Phillies won game three. And what uh, the Yankees, per- or the, the, the Phillies person was, of course, ecstatic. Hey, we had a chance to win this thing. And the Yankees person said, no, you're not going to score another run. 
Like you, you guys, I'm sorry. This is where the depth in their pitching staff will manifest. And the next game, they get no hit. <laughs> and they wind up, you know, being blown away the next three games. The, the Astros pitching staff is unbelievable. All right, Hembo. Thank you for continuing to be the number one contributor on the podcast. Bye, Taylor. Bye, Sarah. Get out of here, Hembo. Sick of Hembo. St. Louis Cardinals. St. Louis won the National League Central comfortably, winning 93 and losing 69 games with a run differential of plus 135. First baseman Paul Goldschmidt won the National League Most Valuable Player Award, but St. Louis was knocked out quickly in the postseason, getting swept by the eventual champion Philadelphia Phillies. Gone, but not forgotten. Yadier Molina was the Cardinals' regular catcher for 19 years. Albert Pujols finished his career with a shockingly productive season in which he had 24 homers and had an OPS of 895. Jose Quintana, acquired at the trade deadline, walked away as a free agent. Newcomers. Wilson Contreras won over the St. Louis decision makers in their meetings with him by talking about how much he wants the opportunity to replace future Hall of Famer Molina. The Cardinals invested a five-year, $87 million deal in the former Cub. Breakout star. Jordan Walker is about the same size as Giancarlo Stanton. It's six foot six and 250 pounds, and yet he moves with extraordinary athleticism. And this includes how he swings the bat with a lot of contact and a lot of power. With Goldschmidt, Nolan Arenado, and other Cardinals participating in the WBC, Walker has gotten a ton of playing time in spring training. And in his first 50 plate appearances, he had an OPS of over 1,000. With Arenado entrenched at third, the Cardinals have shifted Walker to the corner outfield, and he's looked very smooth. The X Factor. The Cardinals might have more position player depth than just about any team in the big leagues, and many of the options for manager Oliver Marmol are young players. Brendan Donovan, Dylan Carlson, Lars Newtbar, Juan Yepes, and Jordan Walker. What this means is that Marmol can maintain a simple standard. Whoever plays the best gets to play. The Cardinals also have a lot of potential pieces in this group for possible mid-season trades. Fault Lines Jack Flaherty has had shoulder problems over the last three seasons, and St. Louis desperately needs him to get back to being a frontline starter because the Cardinals' rotation does bear a lot of question marks. Will Adam Wainwright, age 41 going on 42, continue to be effective? Will Miles Michaelis and Steven Matt stay healthy? Will Jake Woodford, impressive this spring, be a factor? Will the Cardinals need to trade for help? The Baseball Tonight Podcast Win Projection. The Pakota projection is really low for the Cardinals, I think. 85.8 wins. Paul Mbikiti says 89. Sarah Lang says 89. I say 92, and that St. Louis will win this division easily. Alan Gonzalez covers baseball for ESPN, and yesterday that meant... Uh, being at the WBC and watching that incredible event... Uh, Alan, I've been making the comparison this morning for what happened in this WBC to the dream team of 92 for the NBA in terms of launching the marketability off uh, off of this. I really feel like for baseball, you couldn't ask for better, especially going into this really pivotal year with all these role changes. How was that last night? Buster, it was incredible. It was one of the best experiences, honestly, that I've ever had at a ballpark because think about how many times in baseball we anticipate certain situations happening in a game. And because baseball is the way it is and the dynamics of the sport, 
it never happens and it never comes close to happening. And for us to dream of the ideal matchup in this tournament before the tournament even began, which was it being decided by Shohei Otani and Mike Trout. And for it to actually happen, I couldn't believe it. I was, uh, it was even like the seventh inning when I was scoring the game and I was just starting to count the number of batters needed for Mike Trout to come to bat against Shohei Otani. And at one point in the eighth inning, I turned to somebody on my right and I was like, I think this is actually going to happen. And after Shohei Otani slid to try to break up a double play, he walked back towards his dugout, tossed his helmet to his teammates, his pants were caked in dirt, and he started walking to the bullpen. And honestly, this doesn't happen to me often anymore. I'm pretty jaded because I've been covering this for a while. I got chills because I knew that he was going to go to the bullpen and warm up. And Charles going to come to bat. And it was a one-run game. And it was just, it was incredible. It really was. And it got to a full count. I mean, it's just crazy. Crazy. So, uh, Al and I had this conversation with Paul Mikides. I thought, as I'm watching that at-bat play out, pitch to pitch to pitch, I thought that Shohei would challenge him with a fastball on 3-2, like a, the big brother, yes. little brother basketball game, and the little brother wanting to finish it off with a slam dunk. And I said, look, Otani and Trout will never let us in this closely to tell us the conversation they had. But I, I'd almost bet the family farm at some point Trout's going to be like, really? You <laughs> challenge me with a fastball? Does that, I mean, you know Trout well. You covered uh, Otani. The, uh, when I saw that, he threw the slider. It was obviously a great pitch with the plane, I but I it. did think he was going to challenge him. So did I. I talked to Nolan Arenado on the field after the game. He could swear that he was going to throw him a fastball, too. He had come four consecutive fastballs at over 100 miles an hour. He didn't throw the splitter. I don't think he threw a single splitter in that ninth inning. Uh, and you know what? I'll give Trout credit because he was still pretty on that pitch. And if you look at just the movement on that slider, it was incredible. I know, Nolan yes. Arenado said, like, that slider looked unhittable. So, you know, in retrospect, Maybe he should have thrown the slider. I think it just shows. Um, oh, yeah. I, by the way, I totally agree. He should have thrown the slider. That was the right pitch. But I thought in that mano a mano, friend yeah. versus friend, fun competition between these two guys, I thought for sure he's like, I'm going to beat you and I'm going to throw it right past you, even when you know it's coming. And I think the the second to last pitch before the slider he threw him a fastball, but he overthrew it, and it got yeah. a, it got to 102 miles per hour, and it kind of squirted away. And you could tell he was just trying to overpower Mike Trout in the situation. I think that's that's just a testament to what makes Shohei Otani so great, honestly, and just how much more of a feel he's acquired for pitching over these last few years after having come to the United States, having not accumulated many innings. Watching, I mean, watching what Shohei Otani does to two-way players is amazing. But watching the growth of Shohei Otani as a pitcher over these last two years has been incredible to watch. And I think it was on display right there. So tell me what you saw. Uh, and where, first off, where did you go after the game and what you saw? Things that jumped out at you after this incredible moment, this incredible classic. I went on the field, actually, after the game. Um, what I saw on the field was something that I've never seen before, which was a team clinches a championship 
and is on the field celebrating. And the opposing team is also on the field watching it all unfold. And I think it spoke a lot to the, what this World Baseball Classic meant, which was you had intensity that was World Series-like. I think you, everybody could feel that just watching it. But I, I think just what it meant to the players and how unique this opportunity was. And I think there was some, a desire to just kind of soak it all in. I mean, you saw Shohei Otani, first of all, was on the field and he must have posed for, he must have posed for like a hundred thousand selfies with the people who were around him. All the Japanese teammates of his were giddy, taking pictures, celebrating until hours after the last out. But all of team USA was on the field they were there with their families and they were just sort of taking it in and talking about what happened. And a lot of them saying like, I can't believe it came down to Mike Trout and Shohei Otani. It's just watching team Japan celebrate. A lot of them would go over on the other side. Um, you know, these are guys, a lot of them teammates during the season. I mean, I know Lars Newbar had a lot of his Cardinals teammates on the other side. And I know the WBC took a lot of flack because of injuries to Edwin Diaz and Jose Altuve. And I know there were a lot of fans who were, who are so invested in their major league teams and don't want to see any of their pitchers or players hurt and are really worried about their usage. But I think one thing that needs to be understood about this tournament is this meant so much to these players. I, I think a lot of the players who are on Latin American countries or in countries in the Far East where they're baseball obsessed and the World Baseball Classic inherently means a lot, that was easy. But I think you thought a lot with Team USA. And Mark DeRosa made this point before the game um, that the intensity of this tournament almost makes you want to be invested in this. He, he said something like, you either perform or you get embarrassed. And I think Team USA found itself in something like that because the other teams were so good. And I think through that process, they, they grew to love it. Um, I remember Nolan Arenado talking about how when he did the tournament in 2017, he had a lot of players come back to him and ask him what it was like. And he told him, you got to do this. Um, and I can't imagine after watching the 2023 version, I would think there's going to be a lot of players who go back to the clubhouse. And there's going to be a lot of players who are going to say, man, that was cool. I want to do it too. And he's going to be like, you know what? You should. And that's how this tournament grows. Uh, and I think more broadly, that's how the sport grows internationally. I couldn't agree with you more. And I think you agree with me on this, uh, you know, that yes, there is, there'll continue to be absolute discomfort among the individual major league teams with their players participation. And there will be some teams maybe more effective than others uh, at conveying that to players. And some players will adhere to it. I don't think it's a coincidence that through the years, the Yankees have had fewer players than other teams. Cause the expectation is, look, we got to focus, but here's the deal. The WBC is here to stay, uh, and they're going to try to build on this going forward. There's no doubt about it. And so teams that are you know, concerned about this, upset with it, uh, would rather not, not have their players participate, they got to get over it. Because this, it was too successful. Rob Manfred announced yesterday that, uh, as we talked about at the top of the show, the WBC will be back in 2026. Yeah, and uh, we spoke to him before the game, and he actually brought up something that you were um, alluding to there, which was um, how it's going to change with regard to the restrictions from these teams. Um, and he brought up how he'd like to see more representative rosters on the pitching side. And just, you know, the, the one thing that was kind of a buzzkill about the World Baseball Classic, especially in the later rounds, 
uh, is you saw the restrictions for pitchers really show up because spring training is such a critical time for these guys in terms of building up the right amount of innings uh, to get in on schedule to be ready for the season. And there are a lot of guys, I mean, you saw on Team USA, Nick Martinez had to go back to Padres camp because he just wasn't getting enough innings. The Padres also showed some concern about you, Darvish, because prior to a one-inning relief appearance in the championship, when a lot of people thought he was going to start, he had compiled five innings in the World Baseball Classic, a guy who they think is going to be their opening day starter. I know the Royals were uh, very interested in Brady Singer taking part in this because he wanted to him to, you know, experience that atmosphere. He didn't get a lot of work in either. I I don't know how you combat that, Buster, um, but it yep. showed up in the late stages of this tournament. The games mean more, but the best pitchers can't pitch because they're not in line. Um, Rob Manford and Tony Clark, I spoke to Tony Clark earlier in the week, they both agree that there's no other time of year when you could do this. So that part, the pitching pitcher usage and like teams needing them to be on schedule for opening day, juggling that with trying to win elimination games. I mean, Mark DeRosa talked about this so much throughout the tournament. It's hard. It's just so hard to juggle that. Uh, I wish there was a way around it. I have no idea what the answer is. Yeah, I think there is a way around it. And that is, is the tournament's playing out because all these teams, you know, the, the Verlanders and the Scherzers uh, are, are getting ready for the start of the season. I think they should just basically open up the rosters and say, look, when we get to the third week of March, uh, let's see which pitchers happen to be scheduled to work that day and say, and just open it up and say, we're, we've looked around major league rosters. Guess what? Verlander's going to throw on the same day that the WBC final is. So he gets to, to jet in and do it. Uh, there's no reason. I mean, these guys are in, with these teams for such short period of time. Anyway, the WBC teams, why not? You know, if a Verlander is working out with the Mets and he's building up his pitch count and, and he's scheduled to pitch that day, of the WBC yeah. final, fly him in, even if it's his first uh, first appearance. All right, get 60 seconds. I do want to touch on this. One thing that happened this week uh, with one of the nationally contenders, the Braves, I think surprising people around the game, sending Vaughn Grissom uh, to the minor leagues, assigning Braden Shoemake, who was the number one pick in 2019, to the minor leagues. He's a shortstop. Orlando Arce is going to be their shortstop beginning of the year. This is a team that has World Series aspirations and look, there. I think it's going to be a work in progress in terms of replacing Dansby Swanson. What do you think? I wasn't surprised, and I think uh, it's very interesting that the Braves and the Dodgers have both navigated very similar paths. Such an important position, passing up on all this free agent talent at shortstop, going internal, and I think it's no coincidence. Alex Anthopoulos worked under Andrew Friedman for a year in LA. They're close. Uh, and I think they see roster building the same way, which is if there if deals are not on their terms and they and if they feel like it's going to sacrifice their future, they're not going to do it and they're going to show restraint. And Andrew Friedman has talked about this a lot about just how you have to just carve out a path for the next level of talent, right? Dodgers tried to do that with Gavin Lux before he tore his ACL. The Braves thought they had an immediate answer at shortstop with Von Grissom. That's not the case right now. But these teams, part of the reason why they're good, they're pragmatic with this sort of thing. I got to think the Braves are eventually going to figure out they're too smart. They have too much depth in their organization not to. Yep. Uh, I think you're 100% right. All right, Alden, get some sleep. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, Buster. 
You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes, the clutch hits, the strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems, with nothing on your roof. So whoever's up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, 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 with nothing on your roof. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11 ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with Code Baseball. That's Code Baseball. Visit VividSeats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats. Experience it live. Todd Radom is the chief executive of our weekly quiz. He's a graphic artist whose work can be seen on ball fields all around America, all around the world, or you can go to his website, ToddRadom.com. Todd, how you doing? Buster, I am well. How are you, my friend? I'm doing great. I, You know, it's kind of neat on Twitter. You're a very uh, humble person, but uh, this would have been a week where you could have taken a bit of a victory lap because there was just so much talk about the WBC and you were the guy who came up with the original logo that we're seeing all over the place. Can you give the backstory on that? <laughs> yeah, Buster, it's first of all an amazing thing to see this event kind of uh, explode in a way that it was always imagined it would. But uh, my involvement with what became WBC begins in um, in July 2004 at the All Star Game in Houston. These are the initial discussions about a global baseball tournament, what the branding was going to look like. Um, certainly a little bit of a different animal in the sense that uh, international scale, for obvious reasons, it's got to appeal to uh, a broad range of people in a way that something for American sports wouldn't necessarily have to do. And so I'm curious, like the initial concept, the, the first people you ran it past in the Player Association, as you know, had a lot more to do with the formation of this than maybe what people realize. Tell me about some of the feedback you got, you know, initially when you gave them that logo design. Well, it went through a number of different names to begin with. It was not the World Baseball Classic until uh, sometime in the spring of 2005. Um, and uh, the concept of four pools. Um, was not necessarily there at the outset, but that did play into what the original logo looked like with those four quadrants spinning off a baseball globe. Um, the the again, a ton of variations, some of them which revolved around um, the idea of a trophy, which was still in development at the time. Again, different names for this thing. It was originally going to be called the Commissioner's Cup. It was also um, potentially going to be called the Baseball Nations Cup. Eventually, it was settled upon uh, the World Baseball Classic, which, of course, just seems right. But uh, again, it was a, an esoteric thing. At that time, Buster, as you might recall, 
baseball had been officially dropped from the Olympics. And so uh, what became WBC was officially launched at the All-Star Game in Detroit in 2005 was uh, somewhat of a a reaction to that. But again, seeing what this has become, the enthusiasm behind it, both on the part of players and fans all over the world, um, it took a little while to lead up to that. And again, I'm thinking of having uh, been at that first final, Cuba versus Japan, at Petco Park in San Diego in 2006, we've come a long way. So uh, it's a pretty remarkable event. Yeah, and I'm going to be curious to see, because of the success of this year's event, wh- how they build it going forward. Because they don't think they'll just go, yeah, that was great, status quo, because I'm sure that they see a you know a great opportunity to make some money. That's what they're in the business for. All right, uh, let's get to this week's uh, chapter of Forgotten Fields. All right, Buster. The Atlanta Braves are the oldest continuously operating professional baseball franchise, having begun play in the National Association in 1871, where they won four of that league's five championships. The Braves began life in Boston. They played there for eight decades, and for seven seasons, their home ballpark was a remarkable structure that some have called the most beautiful stadium in the history of Major League Baseball. The South End Grounds, constructed on the same parcel of land as a previous ballpark, opened its gates on May 25, 1888. Its appearance was magnificent, an ornate, elegant castle, which included a series of medieval-style spires and turrets. Pennants flew atop the grandstand, which suggested an arena from the days of King Arthur or maybe a jousting tournament at a modern-day Renaissance fair. Built at a cost of some $70,000, the South End Grounds remains the only double-decked stadium ever constructed in the city of Boston. Fenway Park's rooftop seating was added decades after it opened in 1912. This revolutionary setup meant that fans in the bleachers and grandstand were separated, a precursor to assigned seating at modern ballparks. The inclusion of an upper deck also inspired one unfortunate spectator to pen a letter to the Boston Globe shortly after the place opened. And I quote, is there no way which spitting tobacco juice from the balcony of the new grandstand can be stopped? At an afternoon game (laughs) on Memorial Day, myself and a friend were greatly annoyed at the ungentlemanly and filthy conduct of those above our heads, end quote. The elaborate two-tiered curved grandstand was designed by Philadelphia architect John Jerome Deary, and it was rightfully referred to as the Grand Pavilion. There was a press box directly behind home plate, and every reporter was assigned what was described as a hinged desk. Mm. The team, later known as the Boston Bean Eaters, or known as the Boston Bean Eaters in those days, finished in fourth place in 1888, but they drew well with a reported 300,000 paying customers in attendance. The story of this stylish stadium, however, ends in a violent conflagration. On May 15th, 1894, the Bean Eaters were playing the Baltimore Orioles. In the third inning, a fire underneath the right field bleachers began. Boston outfielder James Foxy Bannon attempted to stomp out the fire with his feet, but that did no good. The flames quickly spread to left field. The entire ballpark caught fire, and within an hour, 12 acres were laid to waste, including 200 structures. Nearly 2,000 people were left homeless. The old ballpark was insured for only 60 cents on the dollar, and its replacement was modest by comparison. The club spent 10 weeks hastily constructing a single-deck park 
but it was no match for the majestic structure that previously stood there. The team played there until 1914 when Braves Field opened. Today, the side of the ballpark is home to the MBTA's Ruggles Station and a Northeastern University parking lot, but we can close our eyes and imagine the ornate, elegant castle that was the South End Grounds, which is this week's Forgotten Field. So it's interesting. I had not heard that story about the the fire in the outfield before, you know, hearing you. Uh, I wonder if that ballpark was quickly forgotten in part because in 1914, you remember what happened in the Braves uh, in their first season in their new ballpark. They were no, that team was known as the Miracle Braves. They're way out of first place midseason. They come storming back and they wound up winning the World Series. Um, yeah, it's, it seems strange that that uh, that that's not a more common uh, common part uh, of the history that's told about the sport. Yeah, it's true. And don't forget, Buster, at the same time in 1901, a new league comes on board, the American League, and the Boston Red Sox began to compete for the hearts and minds of Boston baseball fans. And in 1912, Fenway Park opens. So all of the air gets sucked out of uh, the Braves operation. It moves back there in 1914. But of course, that was fleeting. And we'll be talking about a couple of other stadiums in Boston as well along the way. Yeah. And 1914 was also the first year of a uh, an interesting slugger uh, who is actually known better as a pitcher for the Boston Red Sox. That'd be one George Herman Ruth. Uh, all right, let's get to this week's quiz. All right, here we go. Which one of these seasons was the last time the Texas Rangers had a pitcher start on consecutive opening days? Was it 2016? Was it 2009? Was it 2007? Or was it 2002? Which one of these seasons was the last time the Texas Rangers had a pitcher start oh on consecutive God. opening days? Yeah, I got to admit, I, I, I mean, just off the top of my head, I'm like, I don't know if I have a clue. Taylor, what do you got? Um, I'm going to go. It's 2014, 2009. 2016, 2009, 2007, 2002. 16, 09, 07, 02. Uh, I'll go 2009, and I have uh, fellow producer Sarah's answer here. She wanted C, no matter what. That was that's her <laughs> answer. I'm going to go 2016. Uh, this is, of course, is after the Rangers get you Darvish, uh, and it's a great question because the, the you know the the Rangers pitching staff in recent years has been such a puzzle. You know, and this year it looks like Jacob Degrom, if everything goes well, he could get the ball on opening day. I'm going to say 2016 because that's right in the middle of Darvish's time. Well, Taylor is correct because Kevin Millwood started four straight opening days from 2006 through 09. Cole Hamill's buster started in 16, but 15 consecutive opening days without a repeat performance for the Rangers. So, Taylor, congratulations. Two on the board, boys. Let's go. I got to start buckling down next week. You know, season starts next week, as far as I'm concerned. Mm. <laughs> All right, Buster, you be that way. We'll just start it next week, but we're we're already ahead of you. <laughs> All right, Todd, thanks for doing this. All right, guys, thanks. Washington Nationals. 
This is year three of the Washington rebuild, and it's not entirely clear when the Nationals will start to emerge, especially because the team is still up for sale in the year after the death of owner Ted Lerner. The Nationals payroll has been cut in half over the last three seasons, from $197 million in 2019 to this year's $98 million. An injured pitcher Steven Strasburg and struggling lefty Patrick Corbin will account for more than half of that. The Nationals went 55 and 107 last season. Newcomers. Trevor Williams signed a two-year, $13 million deal. The Nationals were able to flip a couple of veterans at the trade deadline last year, such as Josh Bell. This year, they could do that with Jamer Candelario, or maybe former Mets first baseman Dominic Smith or outfielder Corey Dickerson. Newcomers. C.J. Abrams was a centerpiece in Washington's trade for Juan Soto last season, and the number six overall pick from the 2019 draft will get to play every day this year. He can field, and now he needs to add on-base percentage and more strength to his offense. Fault lines. After the Nationals won the World Series in 2019, Strasburg signed a $245 million deal, and since then he's pitched a total of 31 and one-third innings and does not appear close to returning. Patrick Corbin, entering year five of his monster six-year contract, posted a 6.31 ERA last season and is 15 and 35 over the last two years. His backloaded deal runs through 2024 when Corbin will be paid $35.4 million in salary. The Baseball Tonight Podcast win projection. Pakoda suggests 61.4 wins for Washington this year, the fewest that the statistical model projects for any big league team. Paul Hembikiti says 56. I've got 58. Sarah Lang says 59. Bleacher Tweets. Already Buster Bleacher Tweets for a Wednesday. Elizabeth Hart at eHart Tweet writes in so should we just cancel the 2023 world series now because how could anything possibly top what happened tonight it was pretty amazing <laughs> uh it was pretty cool but elizabeth that's just the appetizer right yeah. now we get into the full season six months and a great postseason uh you know the year of otani all the conversation we're going to have about him it's going to be a great year I woke up this morning to a text message from my cousin who was like, oh, Taylor, if you want to know, uh, Japan beat Team USA. I was like, have you ever heard of Chohei Otani before? You said, nope, this is the first time hearing him. And I said, get ready, man. You're going to hear a lot more about him. He's a doofus. No doubt about it. He's a doofus. Jeff Gergenti writes in, after Otani versus Trout, can you give us your ranking of most dramatic game-ending strikeouts? I think I still have Welch, Welsh versus Jackson at one. You know, and that's near and dear to my heart because I was a Dodger fan. What a great moment that was. That was unbelievable where, you know, Reggie Jackson hit three homers in the previous year's World Series. They're in Dodger Stadium. The Dodgers trying to take a 2-0 lead. And here comes young, hard-throwing Bob Welch to face Mr. October and just challenges him with fastball after fastball after fastball. And he strikes him out to win the game. I don't, as a kid who was a Dodger fan, I don't, I don't want to talk about uh, what happened the rest of the world series for the Dodgers. That to me was number one. And I think Otani versus Trout beats it. Uh, I, wow. there's no doubt about it because of the stage, because of you're talking about the guy who right now is the best player in baseball, striking out the guy who's the second best player in baseball. That's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. David at baseball fan, 1918 writes in how many of the team Japan players will we see in major league baseball? They look like they have several players that will be impact guys. Yeah, guys who are in their early 20s. Yeah, you would assume that, uh, you know, one way or another, we're going to see most of them. Doors of the Kitchen at That Kitchen Door writes, and after watching some spring training games, I still 
Uh, I was still pretty indifferent on the pitch clocks. Then after watching WBC games, I could really see the difference and actually like the rule change now. I don't know if other people were feeling the same. Taylor, what did you think? Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. I mean, it was, it's been apparent. Last night was the, the game I, I probably watched uh, you know, in full. I've seen a lot of uh, the action, but, yeah, it dragged last night, and it was, it was very noticeable. It was noticeable after seeing games, and I got to, you know, I always reference my son as being my one person focus group. Uh, and he texted me in the middle of the game, and this was, you know, I mean, they're great players, and it was a great moment, and there was a lot of excitement in the park. But he mentioned, he goes, Man, this game is dragging a bit. And it was, it was about an mm -hmm. hour longer than what you'd have with a pitch clock. You'd still, at the end of the game, you know, would have had Trout versus Otani, mm -hmm. and it's just, it just means it would be one hour less. Yeah, outcome basically the same. Uh, PK Steinberg writes in, WC players are ramped up in terms of conditioning, but do you see any kind of adjustment period needed for them to adhere to the rule changes in the time left between the end of spring training and the real season? PK, no, I don't think so. And that's the concern that I've heard from managers, from staffers around baseball. They they really are excited to get their guys back in camp because they do feel like it's going to be an adjustment for these players to move along faster at a faster pace than uh you know, that they've had in the WBC. Chris at Bergfan004 writes in, Hey Buster, with Ivan Prieto Gonzalez not returning to Cuba, will the country be more hesitant to send a team in the future or have uh, increased scrutiny on the players? I don't think they'll be hesitant to send a team, um, but, you know, in part because this has happened in the past. I mean, it felt mm -hmm. like every time that uh, Team Cuba uh, for the last 30 years has gone someplace, you'd hear about a player defecting and getting away and i do think it probably increases scrutiny on individual players and they will monitor the players and if they feel like someone is you know thinking about leaving then they won't take them overseas that has happened repeatedly in the past mm -hmm. joe wilkins at august west 27 writes in an opening day tradition for me is to post terrence Mann's speech at the end of field of dreams goosebumps every time this field, this game, it's a part of our past, Ray. It reminds me of all that was once good, and it could be good again. Yeah, I had some folks uh, texting me uh, on Twitter saying, hey, what about Vince Scully's reading of that Field of Dreams speech? James Earl Jones, <laughs> he was unbelievable. If you get a choice between Vince Scully and James Earl Jones, that's pretty good. Mm, yeah. Chris Wheeland at CR Wheeland writes in Buster keeps referring to Jose Altuve as a surefire Hall of Famer, but Altuve cheated. Does the Baseball Writers of America Association, whatever BBWAA stands for, view the sign-stealing scandal significantly than PED use, and if so, why? Yeah, Chris, I'm just guessing. I think that Altuve is going to be treated the way Roberto Alomar was in the first time he appeared on the ballot. He had had the spitting incident with John Hirschbeck. And a guy who was an all-time great second baseman, maybe the greatest second baseman of all time, changed the way middle infielders played, was not voted in the Hall of Fame. And I think that was kind of a mini penalty that a lot of writers put on Alomar. And they're like, you know what? First time in the ballot, I'm not going to vote for you. Second time, I will. I would not be surprised if that's what happens to Altuve, even though you know everything you've heard from his teammates is he didn't really participate in the sign stealing. You know, it happened on the team when he was there. Uh, as in, he is a surefire Hall of Famer. He will make a speech in Cooperstown someday. 2021 World Series champions Braves at UK Braves uh, writes, and how do TV rights work? Could a team sell their rights to, say, Apple or Netflix, or does it have to be channels? I was wondering if a team could sell their rights to a digital distributor um, that could potentially target Otani for a big TV deal. 
Yeah. Uh, and, and look, this is a big topic and there's a lot of nuance to it. I would say, generally speaking, it feels like Major League Baseball with the bankruptcy that we've we've read about with uh, uh, Diamond, that Major League Baseball is looking to centralize some of the TV rights. Um, I, I don't think that they'll necessarily do that. And so it's possible that what you're laying out, like let's say for argument uh, that Otani in the, as a free agent signed with the Marlins, you could see the Marlins looking to monetize that and mm-hmm. cash in and, and uh, you know, make a TV deal like that. Kind of like Notre Dame football, right? Yeah. Uh, with NBC for a lot of years. Last one for today. DGB writes in, it's ice cream, not candy, and it will never keep up with the Reggie bar. But Dairy Queen has already established the Buster bar. She sent in a picture, uh, assumedly from her local grocery store. It is uh, artificially flavored vanilla, reduced fat ice cream with peanuts and thick fudge dipped in chocolate flavored coating that doesn't sound too appetizing but i would probably eat one have you ever had one of these buster no i have never had <laughs> a buster and i i don't think i would mm, all <laughs> oh right that, that just, yeah what were we gonna say sarah i love buster bars oh, they're, wow. no, they're you so, have one yes they're a dairy queen classic man there well you there's go. a dairy wow. queen here in bozeman so maybe I'll swing by there, and although that will feel really weird going through like the drive-through, <laughs> uh, yes, I would like a Buster. Uh, that would be really weird. Maybe when we do, if you're here for the trade deadline, maybe we get a box of Buster bars and eat them as we do the Bleacher oh. tweets. Uh, wow, <laughs> we got a lot of time I, to think I, about I, it. I'm shocked at the disgust. Yeah, as someone who never posts pictures of myself on uh, on social media, that that would feel kind of weird. But anyway, maybe I'll get my head around it by the time we get to the trade deadline. <laughs> All right, that's it for Bleacher Tweets. Hashtag Bleacher Tweets, everyone. We'll be back on Friday. And that's it for today. My thanks today to Paul Hembikides. What a genius. What, you know, someone that we just love having on the show. I mean, the show really exists for Hembo. There's no doubt about it. Also, Alden Gonzalez, uh, Bruce, and Sarah, and Taylor. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, and remember... Uh, hate and inequality based on skin color is something we need to fight against every single day. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms or restrictions apply.